The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further, allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Welcome to Spirit Matters, where we explore matters of the spirit with leading experts from across the spiritual spectrum, all designed to enrich and enlarge your wisdom, deepen your joy and peace, and awaken your inner connection to the divine. Here's your host, Philip Goldberg. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Spirit Matters podcast, where we interview wise people with information, guidance, and knowledge to advance your spiritual path and your understanding of all matters spiritual. If you're new to the podcast, please uh, go back and listen to previous interviews. We have probably 20 or 25 by now. Um, And also go to spiritmatterstalk.com if you uh, want to avail yourself of the archive of a few hundred interviews from the previous iteration of Spirit Matters that I co-hosted for many years. Today's guest, I'm happy to say, is Dr. Robert K.C. Foreman a retired, here and after to be called Bob, is a retired uh, academic who earned his PhD in the study of religion from Columbia University, became a tenured professor at the City University of New York, where he acquired a stellar reputation in the academy for pioneering research and writing on religious and spiritual experiences and the study of mysticism, all of which we'll talk about today. Some of the books he edited or wrote became classics in the field and are still being assigned at universities. They include The Problem of Pure Consciousness, The Innate Capacity, and Mysticism, Mind, Consciousness. He's also written non-academic books rooted in his own spiritual experiences. After retiring from academic life, he founded the Forge Institute for Spirituality and Social Change and its subdivision, Forge Guild of Spiritual Leaders and Teachers, which, in the interest of full disclosure, um, I will say I served on the board of directors of Bob later became a hospital chaplain and recently retired from that to focus on a new book that we will talk about. And last and uh, certainly not least, 
I have to let listeners know that Bob has been a close friend of mine for more than 50 years, ever since we were uh, spiritual toddlers in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He even officiated at my wedding. And we now live about three blocks from one another in the Berkshires, none of which will stop me from asking difficult and impertinent questions. Hi, Bob. Hi, Phil. <laughs> okay. So I always begin by asking people to tell listeners their spiritual origin story, what got them on the path they ended up on, what experiences, what people, what influences. And since I know all the answers to this, I'm going to go take a nap. What? <laughs> <laughs> no. So t- please share with us your spiritual, early spiritual life, and then we'll segue into the good work you've done. I, dr- I will. Thank you for all that introduction. Thank you for asking impertinent questions. <laughs> Thank you for moving three blocks away. <laughs> um, I grew up Jewish and uh, a Reformed Jewish family, so it was very non religious religious and uh i used to really enjoy going to synagogue sometimes because the voice of abraham shaw my rabbi always sounded like god to me it was mm-hmm. so deep and rich um but then when i got to college uh, i fell away from judaism long story i fell away from judaism and uh it wasn't too long after that that i I became seriously depressed in college and um, I tried everything I could think of. I tried psychotherapy when I was depressed. I tried uh, yoga. I tried Zen. I studied philosophy thinking that would help. That was one (laughs) of my mistakes. Uh, I studied psychology, which might've been actually a little more useful. Um, And, uh, Eventually, I tried TM. I had to go from Chicago, where I was going to school, um, to Boston, to came, to the Cambridge TM Center, where I met the inimitable Phil Goldberg and also <laughs> learned how to do transcendental meditation. Full disclosure here, Phil was my yoga teacher. I was his failed yoga student. <laughs> um, but TM took off for me like a shot. The very first meditation was really quite something. And the meditations after that for the first week or so was were just about as sort of stunning. And so TM became my practice. And it's been my practice now for what year is this? 2023? It's been my practice for 54 years. Um, and though I have taught virtually every technique through my classes, I would say and I've done pretty much every technique and tried every pretty much every technique. Uh, TM has remained my practice. I continue to meditate twice a day um, and and still love it. And TM led to quite a number of experiences, which I you mentioned I outlined in that book called Enlightenment Ain't What It's Cracked Up To Be. And uh, it's been a wonderful, interesting, rarely frustrating path. And I am appreciative of it. I'm very grateful. And you went from those early days 
into academia, into the study, the, the academic study of world religions, and staked out a uh, territory in the uh, specialty, you could say, of the, the study of mysticism. Why academia? What drew you to, to the world of uh, studying and, and investigating religion and spirituality as opposed to just living it? <laughs> um, I came into academia rather, rather through the back door. Um, I was, uh, in the course of my TM life, I was having a fair number of really interesting experiences. And the question began to come up, what difference does it make if you have spiritual experiences or mystical experiences? So when I went to academia, I really went with the question. I didn't go because I was thinking I would become an academic. I didn't go because I was thinking I would teach. Hmm. I went because I wanted to talk to people about what what are these things that are happening to me and what what difference does it make and what is enlightenment? And it's like I walked in with you know, with a dozen questions behind me. And uh, lo and behold, at some point I realized, oh, you can teach this stuff. And so it was that that led me into becoming a professor. And and it was, um, I must say, I was kind of naive about the whole thing, but it's how well, I walked in. You may have been naive when you walked in, but at a certain point, uh, to to get a doctorate in pretty much anything from a reputable institution like Columbia, it's hard work. There's a lot of discipline. There's a lot of rigor. I know firsthand because I dropped out of graduate school for those very reasons. <laughs> so um, you must have been finding some satisfaction in the uh, intellectual pursuit and and the because you would have had to conform to the disciplines of the field, and it must have at least been satisfying in, in order for you to pursue it. No, I don't know that I could say it was satisfying. Mm. Every time I took a paper into my professor Wayne Proudfoot, he would say, <laughs> he would say this is good, and then he would demolish the paper. <laughs> and it was like a serious challenge to my ego. And I would go home and I would I would talk to Yvonne, my wife, and I would say, "Oh my God, I've just been destroyed. Could you scotch tape me back together again?" <laughs> and so it was this pattern I was in. I'm not sure I could say I enjoyed it, but in retrospect, it was a privilege. Uh, academia felt like it was really, it was really a joy. And the joy was that I went from somebody whose mind was like anybody else's, whose mind was kind of messy. I didn't know what a good argument was. I didn't know what data really was. And little by little, you learn what it is to write carefully and think carefully. It was really the thinking carefully. Uh, the reason I kept going, though, was sort of the reason that I walked in. I read the very first semester. I had a class in um, in the philosophy of religion. And I read this book by a guy named Stephen Katz, and it was called uh, Mysticism and Philosophical Analysis. And he writes this article about mysticism. It basically says mysticism is just you make it up out of what you 
learn before what you expected, what your what your teachers teach you, what your parents teach you. And basically it was, you know, there you just you you know, it's kind of you hallucinate an experience based on what you've been taught. And I read that sort of self-fulfilling prophecy kind of exactly right. It's kind of you've you're you're taught what to experience and then you experience it. And I read that and I said, oh, my. Forgive me. Oh, my God, this is crazy. This is so wrong. First of all, the experiences I was having in TM, man, I didn't grow up in that stuff. And the experiences were not like what I was taught. It was not like what Marcia had told us about, you know pure consciousness and enlightenment and moving your life forward. It was like I was having these experiences, one of which was permanent. I was having these experiences and they didn't look anything like what I was taught. And I, and I thought, this is so wrong. So the, you know, the, uh, the argument that you get what you're experiencing was countered by what I called um, the argument from novelty. You have an experience and it's novel. You don't expect it. It's crazy from what you were expecting. And and so the argument from novelty argues against what Katz was teaching. And I had a whole bunch of other arguments, and I wrote this long introductory essay to the problem of pure consciousness. And then I wrote my dissertation on it. And I became, in the course of doing that, I I, I picked up contacts. People would say to me, you know, after I'd published my first few articles, People would say, oh, I agree with you. I think I think Katz is really wrong, blah, blah, blah. And so I ended up gathering together around me, I guess, um, a whole bunch of other scholars who were also kind of antagonistic towards what Katz and Proudfoot and some others were teaching. And it became uh, it became a real gaggle of us. And so we ended up publishing, I ended up publishing uh, The Problem of Pure Consciousness, which was a collection of these people writing about this. And then we published uh, The Innate Capacity, which again was a was a group of scholars that were running that. And all of us were thinking, there's got to be a better way to talk about this stuff than just it's, your, the, it's just the fulfillment of what you expect. And lo and behold, that argument has kind of held sway. Now, let me uh, dig into that because... Um... Uh, as you know, I, I've been fascinated by by this for many years. I wrote about you and this uh, um, conflict, you could say, in academia, uh, in American Veda. Um, you were the foreman of what came to be called the Katz-Foreman debate. And am I to understand that the... Uh, position that uh, you were opposing was the predominant position in academia at that time regarding understand mystical experience. So you were like a young Turk renegade in a sense. Yeah. And I was young and I was not Turkish, but there you go. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It was more than just the dominant view of mystical experiences. I'm sure everybody that's listening has heard of postmodernism. It mm-hmm. grew directly out of postmodernism. Postmodernism says that you're 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 trained by your background and everybody's background is different and therefore it's difficult to talk across these differences and and you have to understand where somebody comes from in order to understand what they say. So it's it's in in, in And and in, if in I may, a, 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 there's a certain determinism 
in yeah. that, that yeah. your your background, your frame of reference determines your experience. Yeah. And I think that to some extent, we were the tail trying to wag the dog. I doubt we've wagged the dog, but, you know, we were saying, look, there are certain experiences that don't, that aren't subject to that way of thinking about things. And mysticism was, especially the, the simplest mystical experience, which, which we called the pure consciousness event, uh, really argued against the, the background of, of shaping and whatnot, because it's, it's without words and it's without shape. So yeah, it was definitely the young Turks. And, what and was, by the way, it wasn't just me. It was really more the young Turks. Yeah, yeah. Um, some of whom I subsequently got to know myself. And uh, one of the things that distinguishes a group like that, uh, if I'm correct, is you were not just scholars, you were practitioners. Yeah, we did a good uh, a survey when I ran the mysticism group in the American Academy of Religion. We did a kind of an informal survey and the people that held the position that mysticism was not subject to your background training all had a practice, mm-hmm. all had experiences. And the people that tended to argue that, and I, you know, it's like I can't say 100%, but the people that argued that tended to not have a spiritual practice. It t- turned out to be kind of a distinction that yeah. these people are, you know, were arguing against that way of thinking about things because they were all they were all discovering for themselves what was, you know, what this was and how, how autonomous it seemed. And yeah, to some extent, I think we're all still working on that, on how to think about this stuff. And did you also marshal, uh, in addition to uh, the the experiences of people like you, uh, and, and I think there was probably to some degree anyway, a generational thing. It's just like, you know, probably all most of the people you were involved with were baby boomers who had been experimenting spiritually. Uh, that's that's fair, on. most of them. But I, I I would not argue that most of the people that were arguing that the other position were necessarily pre baby oh, boomers. Okay. Um, did you also marshal uh, historical evidence, evidence from texts? Oh, uh, for sure. Yeah, to to support the position. Oh, for sure. Yeah, there's there's a there's a, a a general way of thinking about this that's called the perennial psychology. There was the perennial philosophy that people like Aldous Huxley and Shinro Suzuki and Kumar Swami were arguing that said that all the philosophies are ultimately the same. All the religious philosophies have certain coherences and are all the same. And that was. Now, the argument against that was it's not obvious at all that the philosophies are the same and exactly how you how you say they're all the same were you know called for an awful lot of fudging. But I think it's fair to say, and this is my the way I've come to think about things, it's fair to say that there's a common pattern of experience and and development uh, and evolution, spiritual evolution that I think does run across cultures and runs across times. And I think that that um, it is possible to look through the texts and to say this person is describing this experience. And the only way I can really justify that is I have talked to God knows how many spiritual teachers uh, from, you know, from all across the spectrum. And, you know, when you have a conversation with somebody from a different path and you say, Describe to me what you, what the experience that you're calling blank is, you know, Buddha mind if you're a Buddhist or, you know, non-dualism if you're a Hindu. 
describe what that experience is like. And lo and behold, we're all having the same experience and calling it different things. So if you get through, if you, if you kind of let go of the obvious differences in what we might call the rap, you know, the way people talk about this, if you let go of those differences, lo and behold, the experiences sound very similar. And so I think you see it both in text, but also in living, living representatives of the different traditions. Right. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And there's great precedent for this. I mean, I'm, I, you know, there's that, uh, aphorism from the Rig Veda, thousands of years old, that truth is one and the wise call it by many names. Hmm. There's, you know, people like Ramakrishna and others experimenting and saying things like, um, hmm. you know, this, the, the, the gods along the river are, uh, the people at different places have different words for water, but it's still water. <laughs> nice yeah nice um so the way you talk about that the way you talk about that in the academic scene i've often heard it said the north star and the pole star are called by different names but they're both the same star yeah, yeah. same uh, idea yeah yeah um so that perspective that you brought to it um which at the time uh was new I don't know if it was new, but you were making waves, uh, and it was contested, often uh, hotly contested. Where are we at now? You know, a few decades later in in academia, with the understanding of mystical experience, has has the the contribution you and your colleagues made uh, had inroads in oh, how things sure. are taught? Yeah, for sure. I think we were. 20 years ahead of our time, if you will. Um, from what I've heard, there's a, there's a lot of people that are arguing that there's something about mysticism that's not subject to the postmodern way of thinking about things. But, uh, you know, a changeover like that, you know, the real changeover would take so many generations. Hmm. But I think, you know, I still hear from people that, they, you know, I hear from students, I hear from other people. Um, I have not stayed in academics, as you said in your introduction. Mm -hmm. I have I left academia in uh, roughly two thousand two thousand one, so I can't say for sure what's being what's being discussed in the American Academy of Religion. I've gone a couple times, but that's it's not my world anymore. And mm -hmm. you know, I feel like I've made my contribution there, and that's been very successful, and I've been proud of it. But you know, these other things have taken over my attention and love, and we'll get to those. One last question on this. Um, people listening might think this is all very interesting uh, and, pardon the expression, academic. What are the <laughs> what are the implications of your perspective on mystical experience for the everyday spiritual seeker and practitioner? Are there on the ground implications of the difference between the postmodern view and the the view you represented? I'm not sure it would make a difference in the way someone practices their meditation. I'm not sure it would make a difference in the way in in the in the experiences that one might have. Where it makes a difference, and this is an important difference, is that 
if you think about a mystical experience, you can regard that mystical experience that you have as something authentic, something that's not subject to your training, not subject to what your rabbi or your priest tells you, that you're having something in itself authentically and unusually deeply human. And in that sense, you can you can rest assured that those mystical experiences, and not all mystical experiences are honest. People lie to themselves. But in any case, you know, you you can rest assured that those mystical experiences have their contact with what is authentically you. And little by little, if you continue to practice and you continue to have such experiences, I think you become more profoundly you and more profoundly human, if you will. And in that sense, I think the academic study opens up the door that what you're doing in your spiritual practice or what what I'm doing, what we're doing in our meditation practice, you're touching into the real, capital R, and you're touching into it in such a way that little by little it begins to I want to use the word invade. That sounds so negative. But in any case, little by little, the real you become more aligned with what is real. And the practice of the teaching that we've done says what you're touching in these experiences is authentic, is real, and is of value. So mm-hmm. in that sense, yes. Uh, if I may, I want to okay. add something because, um, as I said in my introduction, after academia, you... Uh, created the Forge Institute and the Forge Guild, and I was part of that. And I uh, participated in um, exercises that we would do that you evoked earlier, where you talked to people about their spiritual experiences uh, and asked them not to use the language of a tradition or uh, that, you know, their heritage or whatever. And you discover these commonalities in experience, not in belief system or or um, doctrine, there's something that then becomes uh, you become aware that what you're experiencing is not just individual but universal, and there's a kinship that happens with people from different paths other than yeah. your own that yeah. I think is very valuable as well. Do you yeah, agree? I do too. Yeah, I do too. We used to call, you know, you'd have a conversation with somebody, let's say you'd have a conversation with somebody who was a Sufi and I don't know squat about Sufi. Well, I don't know very much about Sufism. Um, and I would have a conversation with somebody who was a Sufi and lo and behold, they'd, they'd be just, dis- they'd be discussing their experience and they'd be telling me about their experience and it would it was like we were talking exactly the same language and we were we were sharing but of course their take on it was always different than mine their not the experience but the way they thought about it and you could learn so much from somebody who yeah. was different than you so we used to call those conversations trans traditional right. we would have a conversation it would run across traditions so it was trans traditional but there was something in it there was the quality of those connections i want to say were transcendent it was like you were you were touching into the transcendent while you're talking to somebody who's different 
And in fact, I think if there's anything we would, you know, from the Forge experience, if there's anything that we would want to encourage people to do, it's find somebody that's not in your path and just say, hey, what's it really like? You know, when you get through all the bull and you get through all the rap, what are you experiencing? What's it really like? And when you get there, lo and behold, you're having these wonderful, interesting experiences that are so, so parallel. It is a way to talk across these differences. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for thank you for bringing that up. And I would say, um, you said find someone. I'd say find many people <laughs> for many paths, and and have a podcast. Yeah, look, I just came from the <laughs> yeah right. I I do this, you know, on my podcast. I've had these conversations with people from all kinds of paths, uh, and no path. <laughs> uh, Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further, allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Let's segue now. After the forge, you 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 started a new uh, phase of your life where you were a hospital chaplain. I, I'm curious. In the few years you did that, you were at the bedside of people in pain and suffering and off at the end of their lives. How did that experience or those experiences? change you in any ways or or change your understanding of spirituality in any way? Simple question. Uh, the short answer is sure. Um, you see people, well, first of all, most of my um, patients were Christian in one of the hospitals I worked in, there were some Jewish people. I didn't get a whole lot of those. It just the chance of it. But in the other hospitals I worked in, one of them was called Holy Family, and that was virtually only Catholics that came. So I didn't get to see a wide range of people who, you know, who were in the hospital. Nevertheless, what you see is you see people with different approaches, different language for this. I think the way it affected me more than anything else was that that these people didn't want to talk anything like theory. Very few of them could talk about, you know, the trans-traditional nature of religion or anything like that. Very few of them had what I would call a mystical experience, but all of them were having emotional experiences. Mm. And so here spirituality became, or the way that, that I was engaging with people uh, became much more about their emotions, about living and dying, about their emotions, about God. You know, what what they found in a way that was very heartwarming for me was the ability to say, I put myself in God's hand. Hmm. It'll be okay because God is watching out for me. And in that sense, it was it was very beautiful. And that emotionality, I think, I think led to my own willingness to open myself up to the more emotional side of religion. Hmm. It led to the book that I'm working on now. Yes, and, and, next and, topic. 
people that you know people that were you know would tell me about the losses of their lives that they you know i was i had one patient that said he was so disheartened that he'd lost contact with his daughter mm. and you see these things and you hear them over and over again you realize this is what counts for these folks you know this is what counts that their hearts are breaking open and the the possibility and the difficulty of saying goodbye you know so spirituality became a more well-rounded way to think about emotional connections and emotional openness as well as spiritual openness and the open i had i certainly had a few people that had the kind of experiences i was talking about in my books but i i think mostly people were just you know delighted that they'd been alive or sorry that they you know regretful about what they hadn't done you know and it's it's the real thing yeah yeah thank you for asking that i was yeah and did, did you encounter many people who had um unexpected uh kind of spiritual experiences of that you hear often that people have when they know they're dying or when they have a uh, a near-death experience and that sort of thing of probably you know, i once calculated i probably saw four thousand people of the four thousand ish people that i saw three had near-death experiences <laughs> but i <laughs> but yeah. i was not in the wards uh, you see, the near-death experiences happen when people are resuscitated usually uh, from a heart attack uh, yeah and that um that I, I i did not tend to see those people they were you know that's They'd be in the ICU, and most of them yeah, couldn't yeah. talk. And so, well, what about visionary experiences, or you know, sudden feeling of well, the end is coming, and uh, I used to be afraid of it, and I'm not afraid now. Because oh, that I heard over and over again. Yeah, and that's from near death experiences. But also, it's like people were feeling. Uh, I don't know if they were. If I call them visionary, though, I think that's probably what was going on. But people would talk about. You know, they saw their relative like standing mm -hmm. over there in the room or they saw a figure that they felt like things were going to be okay. I, I did hear some of that. Not a lot, but I certainly heard some of that. The near-death experiences were people that, yeah. you know, had, had, had been resuscitated and had some memories from that. And all three of them, without a question of a doubt, says, I'm no longer afraid of dying. And and I think that that pattern tended to hold of people that simply were dying and were feeling okay with it, you know, mm -hmm. plus there's the people that, you know, you see them towards the end of their, towards the very end of their lives. They, if their eyes are open, they tend to be looking up and sort of smiling as if there's something really nice that they're seeing. Mm -hmm. And we saw that I worked in a hospice for a while and we saw that in that hospice. Um, so, yeah, I think we saw some of that. Interesting. Yeah. Let's segue now to your present work. And the uh, unexpected, unanticipated uh, series of experiences that you had that led you to uh, do uh, research, not as an academic this time, but as a, uh, a, a an explorer and a, essentially a more of journalist, event, you know, kind of thing, um, and uh, the, the book you're working on. So, take us back to. Uh, what in um, in the description of your uh, current 
uh, work in progress. You talked about uh, something surprising. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Eight and a half years ago, uh, a friend invited invited me to go to a church where where a friend was being uh, made into a priest and i go to this thing big big church big service a lot of people and uh i was sitting there and uh i was not in great shape i you know i was having some emotional difficulties and i was didn't have a job and i didn't know where i was going to go and anyway while i was sitting there in this church i began to you know of course you start out thinking Oh my goodness! This Christianity is so old-fashioned. The science is terrible. You know what happened to Noah? What about the dinosaurs? You know, I was thinking all of those thoughts that we all think. And at some point, I, I said to myself, "You know, it's really quite lovely with all these people. They seem to have a belief here that's—it's not mine, but you know, it's lovely the way they're doing this." And then, and then we began to sing this song, and the song was uh, a call and response. And it was uh, this beautiful female cantor would sing out. You know, oh, the did names. you say cantor? Yeah, she's called a cantor. She, she's the soloist. Really? Yeah, oh, oh. she's the soloist. And and so she, I mean, you know, when you have a soloist, yeah. Uh, anyway, she would sing out something like uh, the names of some biblical figure, Mary and Joseph. So she'd sing out Mary and Joseph. And then we would all sing, pray for us. And the the congregation started to sing in richer and richer and richer harmony because it's like it was like a you know we did it over and over again and this was just beautiful music and at some point i said to myself lord knows i can use somebody's help <laughs> and and at that i began to weep not just cry but weep and i was just i had no idea this was coming and at the time, I mean, I knew the song was beautiful, but I had at the time I didn't know what was really going on. So obviously, being a you know being a guy oriented towards his experiences, um, I went back to church the following Sunday, and lo and behold, it was a church closer to my house. That one was quite far away. I went to church to a church closer to my house, Trinity Church in Concord, and I started to cry again. I mean, really cry. And I have been back to church every single Sunday. Well, not every single Sunday, but most every Sunday for eight and a half years. And Phil, every single time I go to church, I weep. I cry. Sometimes it's like blubbering crying. Sometimes it's just, oh, this is so beautiful. I just can't contain it. Sometimes I see something. Sometimes, you know, there's the way people stand or enact or interact or something. And um, but the interesting thing is, and this is why I've been so curious about it. Um, I've never believed a word. I listen to, I listen to the language. I read the, you know, we read through the creed, and it's it's all the stuff that I was denying that very first day. You know, it's like God created the earth, and he, you know, Jesus was born of a virgin, and it's like I listen to this stuff, and I go, oh my god, this is no, I can't buy this stuff. And yet I keep crying. Well, that was a huge question. How on earth to make sense of this that I'm weeping over, but don't believe? So I started to talk to some other people. And and I and I did interviews, as as is my want. I did, you know, long interviews, hour and a half, hour, 
with people. And I began to listen to how do people make sense of this that don't believe it? I found people. And the way I looked for people was I was looking for people that, quote, had religious experiences in church, but didn't believe the language. How'd you find them? Well, just word of mouth. I just uh-huh. kept looking for him. And at the end of every interview, I'd say, hey, do you know anybody else in this boat? And and most people didn't. But when they did, I called them, you know, and I did a lot of Zooming, a lot of calling. Uh, I have friends in Sweden. I talked to quite a number of people in Sweden. I ended up talk- talking to people from pretty much all the liberal churches. Um, and then I ended up talking to a couple of Catholics, a few Catholics. And then I found I found myself in Texas and ended up talking to six people in an evangelical church. And lo and behold, kind of like we were talking about in the Forge, lo and behold, people were having experiences that were quite similar. But how to make sense of all this and what they do. And the way I've come to think about it is, if you read beneath the lines, if you stand at 35,000 feet and look at this stuff, or one of my uh, interviewees calls it, if you read the text with a soft focus, mm-hmm. you can see what's what's going on beneath the text and beneath the, the ritual and the rituals. Um, and so that's that I've been thinking about how do we make sense of this stuff in that way? And what are we saying? And what is God for this gang? And what is who is Jesus for this gang? And so I've been I've been pondering that. And I think the book that I'm working on now, can I tell you the name? Yes, uh, but uh, as you've told me a number of times, it could change. So it could change. It could the, very well the change. Current the current title. The current title is Christianity for Modern Times, How Mystics on the Margins Are Reinventing the Religion So You Can Actually Believe It. <laughs> and so far, this title has stayed with me at least for two months. So who knows? <laughs> <laughs> um. And uh, I'm actually quite pleased with it. I'm really, I'm trying to give a, a a thoroughgoing, a round picture of the whole way of thinking about the religion of of this gang. And I'm trying to represent the people that I've heard fairly. There's a lot of my own thoughts, but a lot of the thoughts of people in, you know, that are, that are in the same boat as me, trying to figure out how to think about this stuff if you're not, if you don't buy the old-fashioned language. So essentially, you're discovering that a whole lot of people go to church on Sunday, don't buy all the dogma, don't ascribe necessarily to the uh, doctrines and the belief system that is being presented, but find other value. Is that fair to say? Sure. Yeah. Find other value. Find value in it. And I would say the value comes in two interrelated um, bits. I was going to use a quantum physics analogy, but it just gets confusing. Um, one is people really appreciate coming together. Mm-hmm. And and you come together in a church, not just, you know, like you're going to a baseball game and you're all in the same place, but you're doing something in common. And something in common means, you know, that that one of us will, one of us will, you know, do something at the altar, and you know, you 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 help give the priest the the plates and cups and whatnot. Another sets the table. Another brings 
brings the food for after the church service and other sits and and um you know welcomes people at the table in the front and you know everybody has a kind of role and, well, and we but do it there together. are plenty of people in the pews who have none yeah right of course but everybody honestly you know in a church where people have been coming for a while people want to help mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know and i it, it was a couple of years before i began to do something and little by little i found myself wanting to help you know so i think that's kind of what it is there's a huge problem in our country as you know as as most people know with loneliness and yeah. You know, the loneliness in part comes because you're just not doing anything with people. You're doing stuff alone. And the loneliness of our culture is a huge, huge issue. Um, so the first bit, the first quanta, if you will, is that uh, people are coming together and finding other people. Sangha. The second, huh? Sangha is the Buddhist. The Sangha, yeah, right. Christian, I think the Christian group is, is more... Um, it's it's stressed more in Christianity yeah. than it is yeah. in Buddhism, mm-hmm. and certainly in the Hindu in the the Hinduism that we know. The second thing is that people are sort of experiencing, certainly being reminded of, uh, and and every time you go to church, there's a kind of a touch of the divine, and you're being you're being reminded of that and brought into that sway every time, so that the sense of the divine is definitely there the sense of listening in the sense of asking for help from the divine from whatever it is and and as i've talked to people i realized that most of the people i've talked to have a sense for something beyond themselves that i like to call the divine it's often not in ge- in fact in general it's not person like it's rather like a field of energy like a like um you know like, like a, a flow or a sense of a larger flow that you participate with and then once you can equate the sense of flow with the word divine and drop off the person like qualities it starts to sound like something that i can believe and that i can be participating with and other people participate with and so that sense of losing the sense of personhood mm-hmm. in the divine i think has been the major shift at the people that I've talked to. And when I talk to these people, by the way, I call them mystics on the margins. And what I mean by that is these people have some experiences, some spiritual experiences. And in that sense, they're mystics, but they're also on the margins in the sense of they don't tend to agree with everybody when they say, oh yeah, Jesus, this. Um, So they tend to stand on the margins or think on the margins. Um, So mystics on the margins, I think I've heard pretty good response to that term. Do they do these mystics on the margins um, in the context of their communities? Um, are there uh, do they feel in, in danger of being ostracized if they were to admit to their fellow congregants that they don't believe certain things that they're expected to believe in or that they're assumed to believe? And is that you know, uh, part of the dynamic. That depends on the church and the kind of church it is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Some churches are what we call liberal. Some churches are much more conservative. The more conservative the church, the more they expect you to buy, to believe what they believe. Um, I go to an Episcopalian church, a particularly liberal Episcopalian church, 
and the priest says every day, everybody is welcome at our Eucharist table. Everybody is welcome to share in the meal with us. I've been to Episcopalian churches that say, um, if you haven't been baptized, please, uh, you know, stand your seat or whatnot. Mm-hmm. I've been to uh, UCC churches, uh, United Church of Christ tend to be pretty liberal, but not all of them. Uh, UU is very liberal. Uh, Catholics expect you to be baptized. So it's, you have to sort of ask, what church are we are we talking about here? Mm-hmm. Um, if I was advising somebody, and I have advised some people on, you know, how to get going at Christianity, I say, you know, look at the churches that are in your area and see which ones you feel like they're not asking you to be somebody that you're not. You know, they're not asking you to believe something that you can't. They're not, they're not, you know, I hate to say it this way, but they're not cramming their beliefs down your throat. And I think that that's, that's critical. If I found a church that said you have to believe like me, that like us, uh, I, I wouldn't be able to go to that church. I wouldn't be good in good conscience. And there's uh, the uh, uh, another uh, alternative, which is you can come, but we we really hold you in contempt, <laughs> you know. And 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 you're not yeah. going to have the kind of access and friendliness that the believers do, because yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, evangelicals tend to be, in my experience, the evangelicals are the most demanding that you believe what they believe that you act the way they act. Um, whereas, you know, a liberal Episcopalian church, you can be pretty much anybody and they'll sort of welcome you if you keep coming. Um, I think a lot of us have this image of what Christianity is about based on evangelicals, based on the mm-hmm, Catholics mm-hmm. of 50 years ago, based on, you know, based on our impressions of these things. I'd say there are very few churches that are that demanding these days, at least in my experience. I haven't been to all of them, obviously, but I've been to a pretty good range of churches and I felt reasonably comfortable in most of them. So, you know, if there's well, only that one is, that yeah, in itself speaks to an interesting shift in the in the religious landscape. That there there may be more of that kind of open-mindedness um within religious institutions than there there used to be. I mean, we know from the research that I've seen uh, in general, that uh, there's been a gradual shift toward this category of people who are called the nuns or the spiritual but not religious, and others who um, f- start to favor their uh, spiritual experiences and their uh more than doctrine and dogma and are more open to other belief systems, but their priority is spiritual experience. Yeah, a couple couple of remarks on that. First of all, virtually all the mystics on the margins went through the spiritual movement uh-huh. and have had their experiences. Generally, right. I can't say this, I haven't really done a study of numbers here, but generally people have been through something Eastern, some mm-hmm. sort of practice, mm-hmm. Or they've taken up the what's what's called the uh, the contemplative prayer practice. Right. It was developed by Thomas Keating. What's his name, man? Um, and I'd also say one thing that I was never aware of until just recently. Um, there's a fellow named George Barna that does the studies of Christianity mm-hmm. and a well-known, well-known pollster of Christianity. And according to Barna, only 41% 
of Christians hold something like a biblical worldview. That means the majority of Christians don't believe the way they used to believe, don't believe the way the traditions present themselves. So if they don't believe that, they they are necessarily more open. I've seen that number about, you know, if you you start looking at specifics, do you believe this? Do you believe this? You know, Barna found the number as high as the 90% that don't believe the way Christians tend to present themselves. And um, so, yeah, the churches have to be more open to this and they have to be welcoming of a range of ways to think about things. And they rec- they also recognize they're hurting. Churches are hurting. And in order to attract uh, people that have been educated as, you know, as, as they're, as a huge part of their audience would like, would like it to be, they need to be able to welcome that, that, that community. And so, yeah, I think there is a more openness to it. Now, I may be giving you a biased view because, you know, it's like I walk into a church and most churches don't demand that I, I you know, I tell them, have I, have I been baptized and whatnot? So um, I, I'm not sure. This is this is very impressionistic. This is not a this is not a scientific study. I'm more a newspaper reporter, as you said, than I am. Yeah, a, right. And I'm a scientist in all this. Well, but you're bringing, you know, decades of uh academic and non-academic investigation of these things. I was struck by what you said, that some of these, most of these mystics on the margins that you've uh, experienced, that you've been in contact with, had some prior experience in what we could call the spiritual but not religious landscape. And I find that interesting because back when I was doing my own little informal research on... This unaffiliated group. I used to, I remember thinking they're seeking spiritual experience, they're seeking authentic spiritual growth and development. But the one thing the churches and synagogues and mosques have that that group doesn't have are communities. Yeah. And uh, what are they going to do when? It's It's a huge loss. I agree. I agree. To some extent, it's the difference between Eastern and Western spirituality. Well, uh, you know, Buddhism and Hinduism are very oriented towards individual practice, whereas yeah. Christianity has always been oriented towards the group process. And I think it's it's a huge issue, and you you hear this all the time that you know the loneliness of our culture is not unrelated to the loneliness of the spiritual path, the loneliness of of, of secularity, the loneliness of our you know, our, our world that is, that is so lost any trust of institutions. Institutions basically are, uh, are, are, are designed to bring people together and hold people together. And, mm-hmm. you know, the institution of Christianity has been dangerous, God knows. Um, and I'm not sure I'm a real fan of the institution of Christianity, but you do need something that's going to allow people to be together and do yeah. it on a routine yeah. basis. Yeah. So it's got, you've got to have people that, you know, and as you said, it's not just... together. As you said, not just going to the gym. Right. And it turns out not just necessarily going to the yoga studio or the meditation center because you, you don't have the rites of passage, you don't have the programs for the children, you know, and all the yeah, other all, things that come with. Yeah, it's the whole nine yards. And I think Christianity and Judaism um, have done a good job of bringing people together and holding them together in a in a larger view. The key is that Christianity says we're coming together under the aegis of mm. God. Judaism says the same thing. And I think 
that allows people to come together and not feel so self-conscious about, oh, I have to work to bring this guy into my, you know, into this world. You know, we all say, yeah, we'll come together and see if we can serve something larger than ourselves. And it does make it all possible. And actually, I, you know, it's funny about going to church, Phil. I um, I wouldn't say I'm very close friends to anybody at the church. And yet I feel really close to the church as community. It's like yeah, we're all there on the same task. We're doing the same basic task. We're moving our spiritual lives forward. We're, you know, we're serving some poor folks. We're doing some decent things. We're helping make this service. We're singing together. There's a lot that we do together, but, you know, but it doesn't mean bosom buddies. It does mean a kind of consistent path, a consistent task under the canopy of what is larger. Okay, now we have a few minutes left. These your these observations and experiences you're relating um, are fascinating, but you also imply that there's larger implications because you you know your one of the premises of your book is that it's a new take on Christianity, I would argue, a new take on conventional religions in general, because I think you'd find similar uh, 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 phenomena if you went to a whole bunch of synagogues or or whatever. Um, But it's a new take, new interpretations of some of the uh, doctrines. Um, What do you see the implications of this for the larger spiritual landscape and and what are our takeaways for our listeners that's a short order right you can do that in three four minutes yeah three four minutes i find myself um walking a rather narrow ridge in uh, boober's phrase um between just give you know just giving the information that i found out and what i've heard from these people and being an evangelist. Mm. I am not an evangelist. Let's I don't call you be... an advocate, perhaps. Maybe that's nice. less charged. Nice. But, <laughs> you know, it's, what I have to do is I have to be careful to not say to people, hey, you should go to church, you know. Yeah, but to yeah, some yeah. extent, in a very light way, I'm saying, you know, I think there's something here for us all. I think there's something here for people like me that have been on a spiritual path and find themselves kind of alone in their spiritual path, wouldn't mind a practice that they could use when they were sick, wouldn't mind a community that they would feel confident would come and see them in their sick bed, wouldn't mind a community that they could kind of laugh with. I think there's something to be said. So I, to some extent, I, I, am, I am advocating that people can uh, participate in a community that makes sense for them and to not be afraid. We're all, I've been very afraid of Christianity. Oh my God, if you become a Christian, then they'll make you into one of these, you know, one of these crazies. It is anti-abortion and da, 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 da. <laughs> and, and it's like, no, I just want people to know there's an actual sane, decent, good-hearted, wise set of other people here that might be nice to hang out with and to do something with. And I think, I think what I want to do, if there's anything I want to do evangelism-wise, I want to help people recognize that you don't have to hold and believe and say things that you don't. I, that you don't have to, you don't have to believe something that strikes you as off. I, for example, have been a very 
dedicated member of this church that I've been going to here in Great Barrington. Uh, and I still, to this day, haven't gotten baptized because I can't buy the words. I can't say the creed out loud. Uh, you know, it's just like, nah. But I can go and I can feel what I feel and I can be together with other people. And people don't care that I don't say the creed. People don't care that I haven't been baptized. You know, and people don't care that I, I, I can't say the words that they want to say. But it's okay. And it's okay for them and it's okay for me. Let me ask you about um, what you call the soft focus on uh, doctrine and and, uh, beliefs. I've had a, as you know, I I was raised with zero religion. I was raised by anti-religious people. Then I found myself on the spiritual path. And, you know, so as a grown-up, on a spiritual path and one who came to embrace what you call perennialism and that the the universality of spiritual experiences and that they can be found in any uh, system i opened myself up to going to you know christmas eve services at churches and you know, being a little bit more open-minded when invited to a Seder or, you know, the high holiday thing. And what I found myself doing is enjoying the uh, whatever ritual aspect of it. And in the case of Christmas, the music and the feeling of the thing and um, the camaraderie and reading between the lines and listening between the lines of the the sermons of the uh, literature and all that, and sort of in real time reinterpreting in ways that I can understand. Okay, maybe resurrection means this. Maybe you know uh, we're celebrating the uh, you know the birthday of a great. Guru, (laughs) you know, so finding my own way through, you know, doctrines that, uh, as you called it, are are Iron Age doctrines. Does that happen? Do you do that? Oh, all the time. But I I, I tend to think about it a little differently than I think you do. Uh, Most people, in fact, most of the mystics on the margins say, I take the language as metaphorical. And you're, Mm -hmm. you're kind of taking it metaphorical. If you think about how religions talk and how religious systems work, uh, this religion or that religion has their way of talking about what I think are relatively consistent experiences, relatively consistent facts, you know, facts behind it. Like you said, you know, the, the water is still the water, even if it's called agua or if it's called water. And what I think is that people have used the, the models of thinking about the infinite of the Iron Age, they, they've inherited the models that say the infinite is person-like, and they've inherited that, and they're describing what they experience in their frames. They're just, So I think rather than metaphors, I think what we're having is a translation issue. Mm. We're trans. Mm. We're. Tra- I think they're all descriptions. So I read what happened to Jesus at the baptism, and I say, you know, I mean, light came down from heaven and there was a dove and da da da. You know, and I think to myself, well, 
the light, the heaven, and the dove, the, eh, probably somebody's romantic idea of what this is like. But he probably had a kind of a breakthrough experience. Mm-hmm. He probably had what James right. calls a conversion. Something happened to him. The, he he sensed something. Maybe he heard some words. Maybe he just sensed the kind of direction. And he gets a direction out of that. That's their way to talk about something. Right. And each time I read one of these rather odd-sounding things, I think to myself, What's he really describing? What's you know? What in our life might it be? Might it be describing? And when you have it as description, as opposed to as, as metaphor, you're really you're pointing me. You're pointing the language points to, this is what the guy went through. This is what the guy experienced, and I think as such, it's very helpful. And that's mm. the way I take it. So yeah, I read between the lines also, but I don't take it as metaphor. I take it as description. Yeah, I can understand that. I, I think I do both. Um, yeah, I'm sure you do. Final words for our dear listeners. What what uh, in all from all your range of experience and your new research, what uh, parting words do you have for our listeners as they trod their own spiritual path? I have two paragraphs. The first paragraph is, I think what I said before is that I want to help people recognize that what seems scary in Christianity, in Judaism, and for the Muslims in the listenership, in Islam, what seems scary is that these things have had years of accretion. And if you if you kind of listen with a warm heart or listen with a soft focus, you can start to hear through those things. And you can hear people struggling to understand the spiritual life people struggling to to praise what they know of as the infinite people reaching beyond themselves in some way and i and i i ask people to be more forgiving of these long traditions that have made enormous mistakes and to not be so mad about the fact that they've been so anti-abortion. <laughs> All right, that's the first paragraph. The second okay. paragraph is i want to thank you for what you're doing here. Oh. I i think the idea of bringing to people thoughtful conversations about these spiritual matters and thoughtful conversations about what you know, what people learned. I think that I wish there were more people like you doing this, that, you know, that, that it's really rich to bring such thoughtful interactions to people and to help the listeners um, and to help yourself and people like me that you talk to. Help us think more clearly and help us think more deeply about what we do. So I praise you for what you're doing. I really do. Well, thank you, my good friend. And thank you for all the great work you've done over the years and continue to do. Listeners, pay attention to what Bob just said and subscribe to this podcast. And tell your I wasn't friend- giving you a plug for God's sake. <laughs> and tell your friends about it. We just had an endorsement from an eminent scholar. <laughs> <laughs> tell your friends, subscribe, listen to the archives, and uh please um go to my website, philipgoldberg.com, email me with your suggestions, get on my mailing list and so forth. Read my books, of course. And uh, check out Bob at his website. And uh, soon this, uh, well, depending on when you're hearing this, because you could be hearing it after his new book is out. Uh, And if you're listening to it uh, sometime in the fall of 2023, it will be out. (laughs) When, Bob? 
um i my my deadline is february 15th so it'll probably be out by this christmas Summer of 2024 oh okay christmas present 2024 there you and go. my website my website is robertkcforman.com there you go and all that is will be posted on the site so thank you listeners thank you bob thank and you. we will see you next time I'm Liz Winter and I have been a medium and a spiritual development teacher for over 30 years. On my podcast, All Aboard the Mediumship, I want to share the message with you that there is a wealth of love and comfort available to you from the spirit world. On my podcast, you can experience this comfort and peace for yourself through gentle guided meditations and helpful messages. Make sure you subscribe and follow so you never miss an episode. Part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network.